3: Hello, this is the Dear Deirdre podcast with me, Sally Land, the Sun's resident agony aunt. Yes, we're taking the Sun's legendary advice column from the page to podcast. Every episode, I'll be giving my advice on your real life dilemmas. We'll be covering everything from sex and relationships to money and careers to managing your mental health and much, much more. And I won't be doing it alone, as each week, I'll be joined by special expert guests and some of your favourite celebs too so if you're struggling with a problem and feel like you need some advice the Dear Deirdre team is here to help you can send your problems to Dear Deirdre at the-sun.co.uk we answer every single letter sent to us and there's no problem too big too small or too embarrassing but for now it's on with the show This week, we'll be devoting our time to those who are grieving and understanding how to help them. Please note that in this episode, we'll be exploring themes that can be sensitive to some listeners. Exact timings on topics can be found in the show notes. We'll be addressing your letters on a shocking secret that comes out after a loved one has died, managing the feeling of replacement and abandonment, and we shed light on how to stop feeling guilty for loving again after the former love of your life dies. Today we are joined by two fantastic guests. We have Simon Thomas who is the former Blue Peter presenter and sports broadcaster. Now Simon has very personal experience of bereavement having lost his first wife nearly four and a half years ago. Yeah, yeah. When Simon lost his wife he also lost his son's mother. So Thank you very much for joining us here today. And we are also very privileged to have Julia Samuel, who is MBE, psychotherapist, and hugely experienced in this field. She's worked with grieving families for over 30 years. So thank you very much again for joining us today. Thank you
4: for inviting me. It's lovely to be here.
3: Now, Julia, would you perhaps start us off by telling me a little bit about what you've been working on recently?
4: So I have just published a new book called Every Family Has a Story How We Inherit Love and Loss which is eight case studies about different families and one of the big aspects of it is how um, trauma and loss and ways of behaving in response to sudden deaths Mm. or bereavements gets passed down transgenerationally and the thinking and certainly my experience through these case studies is that the pain that isn't Um, grieved and expressed in one generation gets passed down to the next generation until someone's prepared to feel the pain. So that's been an amazing journey and process of learning and working with these incredible families, multi-generation families I work with, sometimes four
3: and even five generations. So that was fascinating. That sounds fantastic. And Simon, would you tell us a little bit about what you've been working on recently?
2: So nothing quite as amazing as that. Uh, I've been, well, I've been returning to sports broadcasting over the last year and a bit which has been amazing because I think after everything happened in 2017 I stood away from where I was working at Sky at the time Yeah, Um, you know and I'll always say this because sometimes it gets misconstrued that we had life insurance for both of us so i had the financial ability to do that because i know that for so many people that's not the case and they're back at work very quickly so i'd stood away from sports broadcasting and wasn't actually sure if i'd ever go back to it again but i have gone back to a little bit but what i like now is that i'm doing a number of different things so one of the things that's kind of emerged out of the last last four years or so is is speaking a lot more on on mental health and grief actually within different companies a lot of companies becoming much more wise and proactive in this area and are are wanting to, to help their kind of workforce, their staff, not actually end up in the situation that I ended up with with Sky before Gemma died in twenty seventeen, which is I had to stand down from work because I had very bad depression and panic attacks and anxiety. So it's about how you speak to those people and get them to a place where they're able to open up a little bit more about what they might be struggling with and not then end up in the situation where they keep quiet about it and then they end up having to step away from work for a while. So and on top of that, between myself and my wife Dorina looking after well he doesn't need so much looking after now he thinks he's twelve, he's at senior school, there's lots of big changes with that. So yeah. Life's, life's good. I've got I just feel like I've got a really good balance between kind of work and and home life, which is lovely.
3: Yeah, you say that isn't that big, but that sounds pretty big to me. What the senior school thing? Well, well that, that's massive. <laughs> but also the fact that you're really getting involved in mental health and yeah. and actually being authentic and telling yeah. your story and and as someone who's worked in sports broadcasting, mm. I know have the men that I know in my life, they will connect with you mm. because of your role. And it's just such a fantastic role model to have you opening up about what you're
0: really going yeah. I mean, through.
2: I do. I love. I'm not. Don't enjoy speaking to men and women, but particularly with men because you know I'd count myself as one of these many years ago in the classic bloke. Don't really open up about anything. Whereas now I'm very open about pretty much anything, and have no problem going to see counsellors. No problems. Just say I'm struggling. But a lot of men do because they see vulnerability as a sign of weakness. Well, yeah. I will always say to people, actually, it's a real sign of strength, particularly for a guy, if you can say, I, I'm struggling, kind of opening up that clenched fist and just saying, right, today, I'm in a bad place. That's actually strength, not weakness. And I think particularly in the world of sport that I've inhabited for so long, it's still that narrative of this is this is kind of weakness Uh, and so this you know i i found after that period where i came away from work and before everything happened in late 2017 is that i was getting phone calls from people within the game and i can't mention their names now because they they haven't opened up but you know men who were titans of the game of football just ringing me up first to see how i was which i found just you know incredible thing to do but saying actually do you know what. I've struggled at times with this, and I even look back now and think, gosh, if some of those figures were able just to vocalise this and say, look, it's okay to feel like this, it didn't affect the, the player I was, but I, I kind of wish I'd been able to open up. But there's still way too many in the world of sport, and it is changing, but it's a very gradual thing. Whereas I'm seeing within kind of corporate situations and companies that that there's a much bigger move to, to change the narrative on this.
3: Yeah. Culturally, it's slowly beginning, isn't yeah, it? Yeah,
2: in sport, it's, it's a slow burner, I think they call it.
3: Yeah, yeah. Well, keep doing what you're doing. <laughs> it you. is really important, even for people who aren't involved in the media yeah, and sport yeah. as much as you. Most men in this country love sport mm. in some shape or form. Yeah, they do. And most men have moments when they struggle with yeah. their mental health okay. as well. Yeah, so. hugely. Thank you. I wanted to ask both of you if there was any advice you could give somebody who wants to help another who's maybe their wife, their father, a child even has died. How do you reach out to them? How do you help them? Julia, perhaps you could start.
4: So I think the first place is before you contact anybody to let yourself know both the level of the loss, that this is incredibly painful, and also that you can't fix it, you can't make this better. And also recognize that your capacity to give love and attention makes a difference. So that's a kind of complicated template. Mm-hmm. But then contacting the person and, you know, you'll know how close you are. So if you're really close, show up, you know, go to the there where they live, be there. If you're a bit distant, I think texts are helpful because they, they don't, the person doesn't have to reply, mm-hmm. doesn't have to kind of put on the performance or tell the story again. But the main thing is the acknowledgement, I'm so sorry for your loss, because often people want to kind of come up with don't worry you'll this or don't worry that or maybe they've um, gone to a better place or all these terrible euphemisms that completely kind of um, are experienced as a sort of derogation of what happened of the level of the loss. So I think that is the main thing. But the thing to know is that the single biggest influence on someone's outcome is the love and connection of others that when someone we love dies we need the love of others to survive so whatever your role is as a a school parent as a friend as a significant family member or close friend be loving and by that I mean really be prepared to listen and allow your friend or, or family member to express their pain
3: Brilliant, thank you. Simon, what would you like to add?
2: So I'll, I'll speak obviously from my own experience. Mm. Uh, I mean, everything, Judy just said, just really chimes with, with my experience. You know, the, what I remember most from that period amidst everything that was going on and and the pain and the confusion that goes with, you know, a sudden bereavement like we went through is, is the people who did show up. I will always remember for the, for the rest of my life a knock on the door. So Gemma died on the on the Friday evening. We had lots of family and friends around us for for days after that. The house was quite busy. But a knock on the door on the Monday morning, and I opened it, and there was my old mate from Blue Peter, Matt Baker, had just decided. He'd actually had a conversation with our old editor Richard. Should I do it? Should I not? And I'll speak about Richard in a moment, but he showed up. And it meant the world to me because it's it's a really brave thing to do. You you, you do not know, however close you are to that person, the first time you see them, you don't know quite what you're going to find. You, you may find them, understandably, in a, in a total mess. You might find them at that particular moment very angry. There's a whole plethora of emotions, particularly when it's traumatic. We had no time to prepare, so I was a, a mess, an absolute mess. So you don't know what you're going to find. So that, that's it's an incredible thing to do that. Um, and I remember a few years before, so that guy Richard that Matt's spoken to used to be the editor on Blue Peter, and very, very sadly, his 14-year-old son took his life. And I remember oh that day... Goodness. Thinking, oh what goodness. do I do and I just felt our oh, text you know he's a good mate a text isn't really enough in this situation but can I really pick the phone up to him and I did that evening I don't tell this story as like please give me brownie points for doing this but I remember picking the phone up to him that evening and it, if I'm honest I, I hoped it would go to voicemail and I could leave him a message and he'd hear my voice and know that I was thinking of him and he answered it and I I'd never experienced the sound of guttural raw grief like i heard that night you know the guys just sobbing and screaming down the phone and it was it was a really difficult call but i was so glad i made it and all those years later he says i still remember that moment so you will remember the people who were there and i always say to people you you don't need and you shouldn't feel the need to have the answers because you don't have the answers as you've been saying Mm. you know they cannot fix the one thing that would fix it which is the person hasn't died but they have so there is a a massive unfixable problem at the center of this And, and i say to people if if all you can manage is being practical
4: Lasagna that, helps. Yeah, we had
2: lasagna where people sent us friends just go, I don't know what he wants to eat, I don't know what Ethan will eat. So they would send us a cook voucher that, you know, amazing company does those yes. lovely meals. Yes, That made a massive difference to have a freezer full of food. So, you know, once people weren't around the same numbers, you know, I could just get a meal out and didn't have to worry about Ethan's Ethan was going to eat that evening. So I will always remember that practical support. I think one of the things that I learned as time went on um, is that when you're thinking about a friend who's just gone through this, there are going to be friends who need to be there for the long term. You know, yeah. grief is not a short term thing. And the, the only analogy I've ever come up with that kind of describes our situation was that it felt like when Gemma died, it was it was like suddenly the, the, the house of our life was on fire and everybody rushed in and pulled us out and they got the rugs around us, they brought us food, they brought us water. Uh, and over those next few days, leading up to the funeral, the, the fire begins to die down and then you're just left with smoke rising and then the embers begin to glow and then the funeral comes and goes and the fire goes out. And it's at that point that the slow, slow rebuilding of life has to begin. And I found at that point, it was when a significant number of people, they were very good at being the emergency services, Mm. coming in and, and doing all the practical things and getting around us, but actually, That, in my experience, and for countless others I've spoken to, that's where the really tough work begins, because that busy period of the inevitable momentum of preparing for a funeral that you never expected to prepare for, but you have to unless you want to give it to someone else, but you want your personal touch on it, but then life has to start beginning to go again even for you and I had an eight-year-old boy who has got to be back at school and the people I remember the most are the long-termers the ones who didn't disappear once the fire went out yeah they, they hung around they'd keep checking in and even if they were busy just that text a day, And people say oh you know text isn't enough actually it is and they were the ones who wouldn't be offended when there was no reply yeah I had one or two who'd go oh, I never hear from Simon and they'd stopped Because at that point, I was either in a really bad place or I was trying to spin all these plates of Ethan. What am I going to do about work? had big decisions to make in the first few months. I didn't have the mental and emotional capacity to remember to reply to people, so just, I just say to people, "Hang in there, hang in there," and also recognise that they are going to be difficult people to be around at times. Yeah, and don't take it personally. Yeah. I think one or two did take my anger or my upset because, like, we're, we're doing everything for you, but you're still upset. Well, no, I'm upset because I'm in a really painful place. It's yeah. not about you; it's about where I'm at. So. Please, you know, if you are listening to this and you're trying to reach out to a friend, trying to be around them and they've gone off on one at you, don't take it personally because they're just expressing grief, which is a messy, painful process.
3: And a long process. Long, yeah, yeah. I wonder if your answers will be different for the same question, but mm. for a child, a child whose sibling or parent has died. What, what advice would you give someone who's trying to help a child that they know who's going through a bereavement? Is it different advice, Julia?
4: So, I mean, I think one of the um, big misunderstandings, often, which I hope is changing, and people like Simon are really helping us change it, is you know, children are amazing; they bounce back. Yes, they're you so hear resilient. That all the time. And I children- hate that, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> of course you do, because it's not true. Children grieve and feel the pain absolutely as much as adults do. Mm. But they don't always, you know, it's very developmentally age dependent. And from seven and under, they have a kind of magical thinking. So they don't fully understand the permanence of death. Um, And they don't have the, I mean, often language is very faulty in expressing how we feel. But for children, they wouldn't even know how to name all the complex, messy process of what of they're feeling. Yeah. But children really do grieve and they learn how to grieve by observing the adults around them. Mm. And so if the adults, like Simon, very naturally allows himself to express how he feels and is angry or sad and you know is having a bad day, Ethan learned that. But he would also learn that Simon got food on the table, got him to bed, got him to school, that he was all right. And so one of the kind of metaphors for children's grief actually, I think. is more true of adults, but <laughs> we don't... I think adults feel like children when they're grieving. I think they, we feel right. very small and powerless. vulnerable. Mm. But I think the, the, the most useful metaphor is that it's like jumping in and out of puddles, mm. that you can jump in, or the puddle can suddenly appear from nowhere where you feel very sad or angry or scared or lost or confused, and then jump out of the puddle and be OK, kick a football, go to school. Um... And also that children don't want to be bereaved children, right? Mm -hmm. you know, because they don't want to be different from their peers. And that different children, even in the same family, will experience and express their grief very differently from each other. You know, an eight-year-old may be able to name how they're feeling and be sad. Their teenager brother will, will want to go and go clubbing or kiss girls, but actually underneath they're both feeling as much pain Mm. but people might judge the teenager and kind of warm to the eight-year-old so we we need to kind of understand that there isn't a right or a wrong way to grieve for adults or children but we need to give them opportunities to be able to express it and the big thing again is supporting them
3: Mm. thank you
2: yeah, the puddles analogy is is absolutely brilliant. It, but I, I had a, I was fortunate. I had a very early call. I think it was the day after, just a brief call from the local child bereavement charity where I was living in Reading at the time, uh, and she used that exact analogy. Right. And of course, never having been through this before, I was like, okay, what's that? And she explained it, and I was seeing it being lived out through Ethan. Yeah. Within hours of that conversation, I remember on that first Saturday. So even despite the the shock of less than 24 hours earlier, finding out his mum has gone, they're already, well, Ethan was already trying to begin to try and understand and question how life might look like going forward amidst everything he was feeling. And I remember just seeing his Puddles moments so crystal clear on that first Saturday morning. He's got his cousins over, my sisters were around, so his, his best mate is cousin Thomas was there who's a couple of years older than him and they were larking around on the PlayStation so you're in this I was in a nothing more than a daze at this point nothing's really sunk in what's happened just sort of sat on the sofa just looking at them and I remember thinking how's how's this work he's they're playing pretty much normally yeah. and then my sister called them through for breakfast and Thomas went through first and even just sort of change like that mm-hmm. and you can see the sadness immediately in his eyes and sort of tears building he sort of came up to me and gave me a big hug and then he said daddy I said yeah he said how's how's it going to work now on, on Saturdays so his experience of Saturdays up mm-hmm. until that point is that was my game day at Sky I did midweek games as well but pretty much every Saturday in the season I'd either have gone away on the Friday night if it was further away and stayed in the hotel or I'd leave early on the Saturday morning and do the game so his experience of life till that point had been daddy goes to work on a Saturday I spend the day with mummy. Mummy's now gone. Well, how does that work? Where's all my references? Yeah, so he jumped into the puddle of pain and questions and trying to make sense of life like that. Yeah. And I remember seeing it at Christmas. I was in a really bad place. The funeral's come and gone. I was just, we were at our sisters in Norfolk, and I was just an utter mess, drinking too much, just all, all over the place. And yet I'd sit there in the lounge, and I could hear thomas and ethan giggling away playing around with lego or on the playstation again and i I remember writing this in my book i actually felt jealous at times of him i wanted to be him even if just for half an hour because as an adult what i wanted release from you know aside from all the pain you're in there is a myriad of questions coming at you and they never relent until you find answers and some of them are going to take a long time to find answers like the work question so that was a real like a punch in the solar plexus that saturday morning because i'm thinking i no, i i don't know you haven't i, didn't even have an answer. That I said I, I don't know i just said to him these are all things we can work out in time so please don't worry about them now but in my mind i'm going i i don't know how this works
0: mm. but um, what were,
4: can i interrupt yeah you? what was important in that moment is that you told him the truth mm. and one of the mm. key things so often people want to protect their children from yeah. suffering yeah and don't tell them the truth yeah and you know, children experience that as exclusion, or they find it out, mm. and then it's a lie, and then who yeah. do they trust? Yeah. So the fact that you could say, "I don't know," yeah, Um was really important and built those kind of bridge of trust between yeah. you. Like, okay, I can go back. Dad's going to work this out.
2: And I and I think that was so. Listen, I I wasn't going off a of manual mm. because when you go through very sudden bereavement, there's there's no lead up. It's no. not saying it's any more or less painful but you don't have the preparation time to think through or talk through with your other half about plans for life going forward without that person. Yeah. So I was doing a lot of it on the hoof but I just had this I think instinct's a bit too grand but I just had this feeling that like Julie was saying when the questions came and that was the most interesting thing and that's what I'd say to people in, in terms of how you deal with a child's grief is even if it's you know a close friend's son or daughter if if they ask questions don't shut them down. Yeah. The temptation is, because I had some really difficult questions to answer, so there was that one, that wasn't particularly difficult, but I think within three days, and he slept, we we had rooms up in the attic, two guest rooms, so we decamped up there. I couldn't go back to our old room for a long, long time, and I wanted him as near to me, so I made him a lovely camp bed on the floor. And we used to have very deep and meaningful conversations first thing in the morning. When he woke up, he'd just have questions. So within three days, he's asking, what do we do with mummy's clothes? And I'm, at that point, my, my immediate reaction in my head is, I'm not having this conversation. I don't want to talk about this, but I just felt, actually, this is a real question based on real feelings. I can't shut him down. So we talked about it and said, well, maybe when the time's right, we can give your mum's clothes to a charity shop. You can keep some bits if you want, you can choose what you want, uh, and we can give them to a charity shop that raises money for people struggling with cancer. Within a week of that, he's one night he says, Daddy, you could die tonight. And I'm like, again, you go, oh, don't be stupid, don't be stupid. Of course I couldn't. But he goes, yeah, but mummy died in three days. Straight away in my head, I'm going, yeah, that's a real question. And so we were able to talk it through and say, well, we didn't know, but we know more now that mummy actually was ill for far longer than we thought. I'm, at the moment, I feel very tired (laughs) because I'm not sleeping well, but I feel healthy. I think it's unlikely it'll happen. It could happen, but I think it's really, really unlikely. I'm sure you're back up here, you cannot promise them things that are not true. Yeah. The temptation is, you know, I'll always be here for you. Lie, mm. you won't. Mm. And That's not how life works. And for me to say that evening, no, 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 that, that will never happen again, a lie. It could happen. I said to him, it's hugely unlikely.
3: Yeah,
4: and if it does, you'll live with my sister. <laughs> yeah, yeah.
2: <laughs> so so I just felt it was important when I am supporting him, and I say to other people trying to support children, is, is when those difficult questions come, you may not have the answer Mm. but you need to go there with them because otherwise i felt if i kept going ethan i'm not talking about that now eventually you shut the door yes and he's nowhere to go with those questions he'll go dad never wants to talk about anything so he begins to bottle up real fears real concerns about and ultimately i think as time went on i could recognize that what he was trying to do and he asked me within three weeks if i'd get married again
3: Wow, you know, you at the time you're like, the, where does that come from? Yeah.
2: But he's trying to, because the security of his Survivor, family has been survival. blown apart. Right. And it's, what do I want to life to look like going forward? Yeah. Will there be that? It'll be different, but will there be some semblance of what I had Recognize, before? Recognise, yeah.
4: yeah. And it, when children, if they have a dying parent, so, um, you know, say a parent that has cancer and they've been told their parent is going to die, mm. what's often painful for the dying parent is that children's instinct i think all of our instinct is to to survive and so they gravitate towards the healthy parent yeah and sometimes emotionally withdraw from the dying parent right and start asking questions like who's going to take me to football on saturday you know when mum dies what is going to happen next and so they do it before and again often parents like you know, are angry, like yeah, how can wh- you, can you be asking? Why does football matter right now? <laughs> it's already been written out of the story. Yeah, but it's to allow them to, that's the way that they can support themselves. Yeah. Mm. is like if I have my basics, I've got my friends, I've got food on the table, it's like Maslow's hierarchy of mm. needs.
3: Ah, uh, thank you both. It's time now for us to turn to our listeners' letters, the first of which comes from a man who's struggling to love again after losing the former love of his life.
0: Dear Deirdre, When my wife died, I assumed that was it for me. I'd had my one big love and
2: unfortunately lost her early. But 15 years on, I've met the most incredible woman. She's kind, caring and great with my grandkids who are 14 and 12. She's 60 and I'm 62. We met at a tennis club. As both of us had turned up alone, we got matched to play a doubles
0: game together. Now we've been dating for almost six months. Everything has been going really well except when it comes to the physical side of things. We kiss and cuddle, but I can't seem to go any further. Although I really like this new woman, I can't get past the feeling that
2: I'm cheating. How do I move past this feeling of guilt that I still have?
3: It's such a sad scenario. That's 15 years Mm. on for this man, and he's still feeling guilt Mm. for wanting to to move on with his life. Julia, would you like to start?
4: So, I mean, lots of things. One is a kind of basic that we are capable of having multiple loves. Yes. It's not like you just have one love yes. and it took this man a long time to kind of recognize he could dare to let himself love again. Mm. I think what's complicated with our partners is that when our partner dies, our love for them doesn't die. The love continues and you want it to continue even when you love somebody else. But there's this confusion sometimes that the person that you love who has died is kind of watching you from heaven because you want them or wherever you believe they are. And you kind of believe that you have to show them that you're still suffering, that you're in some way abandoning them or failing them if you let yourself live and love again. And so that's very confusing. And then the other side that's very confusing is our thinking and our feelings mostly never match each other I mean they do sometimes but in grief often logically you know that the person has died logically you know you're not being unfaithful logically you know there's no reason to feel guilty but we can be overwhelmed with these feelings of guilt that somehow we are betraying them and and being unfaithful so I think what helps first of all he's named it he's recognized it and guilt you know is a we're wired evolutionary to feel guilty to make sure we don't shoot our neighbour or steal their food. But guilt and grief is the most painful companion of grief. And it's normally a burden we put on ourselves that is in no way legitimate. Yeah. Yes. We, we have it for surviving, for being okay. So my advice to this man would be to allow both, to allow that he feels guilty and sad and confused and maybe that he's being unfaithful. And also to let himself engage with this woman, connect with her, and do it in bite-sized chunks. So he's mm-hmm. kissing and cuddling now. Maybe they could experiment in being in bed together and holding each other and just go at his own pace. Yeah. And when he does it kind of incrementally, he will recognise that the sky doesn't fall in, that he isn't a bad person, and that he can hold multiple feelings and loves at the same time and that you can move in and out of them and once he recognises he has that capacity then that can free him to be his full multiple self and accommodate both his loss and his love Mm -hmm. and his
3: sex life, which is really important Yeah, all those facets are intrinsic parts of all of us aren't they? Mm -hmm. That's so interesting again it comes back to not shutting down one valid set of emotions and feelings and letting all of it breathe together, isn't it? So that you can move forward.
4: Completely. So we, often we want to sort of have control yeah, and we want um, clarity and we want a kind of fixed mindset of if I do this, I'm being good and if I do mm. that, I'm being bad. Yeah. And most about life is paradoxical. Yes. And uh, there are competitive feelings that don't
3: fit each other, but all of them need to be allowed. Thank you. Simon, what would your advice be to this man?
2: Well, it sounds like he's he's got one really good thing going on, as, aside from, from meeting this new, this new lady, is that it sounds like she has a really good relationship with his family. Yeah. And that can so often, just in my experience of talking to others who've been in similar positions to me, can really make life very, very difficult yeah. for both for the new person coming in and the person who's marrying or finding love again can make it really difficult and really exacerbate those feelings of, of guilty I'd say to him this and I used to absolutely hate this phrase in the early days because mainly because I just didn't understand it but that be kind to yourself I, yes. I think it's it's easy with something like this to beat yourself up and think well I I, sh- I shouldn't be I didn't think I'd ever fall in love again or actually be loved again I thought no one's going to you know be in a relationship with me when I've gone through this and I don't think I I can ever really love again it's been one of the most amazing parts of the journey of the last few years is that that's been totally possible yeah and it's been such a massive blessing you know meeting dorina but I totally understand how this this guy feels I think a lot of it comes down to it's a brutal thing death yeah you know whether it comes at a ripe old age like my dad who I lost the year before last or at a young age it's brutal because yeah. it's it's final it's a full stop there's yeah. there's nothing that comes there's No after. compromise they've gone yeah. they've gone and even as the bereaved who live with the reality of that person having gone their physical absence every day where it's patently obvious this person has gone there's still that feeling that it well it isn't quite the full stop so therefore well, how does someone coming into that space and coming into my heart again how does that work yeah but it absolutely does you are totally and utterly allowed to love again and if you find love again then just go enjoy it, it. Yeah. absolutely and and just yes. open your Embrace arms and go, this yeah. is an amazing thing yes that, that yeah. even after everything he's been through that a new person has come into a life it will be different because we are all different yes but it can still be just as amazing and just as enriching and may surprise you in ways you never knew but just go easy on yourself
3: yeah I love that. It's such a simple message, but it is so true. Just be kind to yourself. Coming up next, we hear from a teen who's finding it difficult to accept her dad's new girlfriend out of a fear that she's replacing her mum. Plus, we question what to do when you discover a life-changing secret about your partner after they've passed away.
4: To get started, visit plushcare.com
0: weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss.
3: It's time now to take a look at our next listener letter, which comes from a girl who's struggling with the feelings of replacement since her dad has found a new love after her mum has died. Dear Deirdre, I hate that my dad has started seeing another woman since my mother died. I can't help but see her as a replacement for my mum. I'm 17 and mum died three years ago from cancer. My parents were childhood sweethearts and together for 25 years. They would have grown old together. Dad is 53 and hopefully has many years ahead. Last month he told my older brother about his new girlfriend. My brother is 24 and we're very close. I think dad was hoping he'd help him break the news to me. I don't know her, nor do I want to know her, but I feel so selfish. I'm torn between wanting him to be happy and feeling awful that mum isn't with him anymore. I'm sick of feeling this way. What should I do? Gosh. Yeah, it's really Mm. sad to hear it from teenage daughter's point of view. Mm.
2: My first bit of advice would be that at some point it's going to be really important for her to express how she's feeling to her dad to sit down and have a a chat with him. And the biggest thing I say is try and put your feelings and your judgments to one side, particularly your judgments. like Because your dad is is allowed to love again. That word replacement is is where things get difficult because this woman is absolutely not a replacement because this girl's mum is irreplaceable because we are all irreplaceable. Mm. So this woman isn't coming in to replace what was there before. She's coming in to her dad's life to love him in a different way that he was loved before and for her dad to love in in a different way to the way in which he loved his mum. So she's not replacing anything. But I totally understand why it's seen that way. And these things can get so lost in translation. You know, you're talking to maybe the brother about it, but you're not talking to the dad. The dad's talking to the brother and it's coming back to her. And you get lots of mixed feelings going on that I would always say to people, please, uh, at some point when you're ready, when you're ready, when these feelings that you're you're experiencing right now have died down a bit, talk it through with your dad. Say, express how you're feeling, how it's made you feel, but without judgment. And I, I felt this a little bit with me at times in that people want you to embrace life again they want to see you happy because ultimately it makes them feel more comfortable for a start because you're yes. not the difficult person to be around anymore so they're like breathe a bit of a sigh of relief but there's also that slight tension with people going but, but is he is he ready for something like yes. this is he should he be quite as happy as he is right now shouldn't he be sort of in sort of mourning mode for a little bit yes. longer there's no time frame on any of these things what can be for one person a, a, a year's journey for another person could be a 20 year journey it just it just varies from person to person but Judgment is just the killer, I think, in this thing. When you come with your opinion on how this should work, I want you to be happy, but...
3: Yes, it's I want my you, version yeah, of happiness. Yeah, I want you to
2: find a relationship again, but... Mm. Sh- Hard though this is, and I totally recognise for this girl, this is so hard. Yeah. She didn't imagine. The lost years, as Julie will know, the lost years are another layer to bereavement when someone goes young, yeah. like her mum has. Yeah. She would imagine probably, I don't know this girl's background, maybe getting married one day. She might be married already, I don't know. You know, the thought of maybe having kids one day and her mum what kind of grandma is my mum gonna be. And yeah. we've got all these kind of things we think ahead, and there's a little stage post in life and what life's gonna be like. Well that's all been snatched away from her. Yeah. Her mum will never be that grandmother figure. Because she's gone at a young age, yeah so all that's gone. You're mourning the lost years, and that sitting alongside your dad now, finding and beginning to find love again, is is a really hard thing to marry together. But I would just encourage you: when the time's right, sit down with your dad, express how you're feeling. Don't judge him for where he's at. This is his life; he is allowed to lead it in the way that he chooses, and talk it through. Because too much gets lost in translation, and then hurt can begin to really play a huge part.
4: I agree with Simon, except that she can't help but judge. I mean, (laughs) that's part of her feeling. I mean, first of all, I would acknowledge that she has a lot of insight. Mm. So she has a lot of awareness of all the complexity of what she feels. And that's a real strength. Mm. I completely agree that they all need to communicate with each other at the same time. They all need the same truth and the same story and to be allowed to have their different feelings within the same time. I think often as a family, walking and talking is a really good way to have difficult conversations. So to go outside, when you're looking at the ground, there's moments for silence. And that, again, it's this thing of the complexity of it, that she can hold both, that she is furious that her mum has died. Mm -hmm. She has been robbed of her mum. Grief means to be robbed. So she's been robbed of her mum, and as Simon said, she's been robbed of the future of her mum that she had every right to expect. And she needs to name that. And she is furious with her dad for what feels like is replacing her mum. And feeling it doesn't make it so... (laughs) Because, of course, she isn't replaceable. So I think the more she can be honest and express her distress, her anger, her loss, her fear about her mum and not protect her dad from all of the judgments and him not be protected but be open, then once it's above the waterline and voiced and expressed, that in a way frees them to open, to have allow the reality that he has a new relationship and that she can go at her own pace with that woman it, you know i think if she she had no control over her mum's death so what would really help from her dad's perspective is if they can have these open and important conversations maybe lots of them over time but let her be in charge of when she meets mm-hmm. the girlfriend right. let her have some yes. agency and control When it's mothers that die, it's the kitchen and the bedroom that are real triggers. Right. And so talking to them about the small things, the Mm. minutiae of mum's stuff, is there going to be a place where we have mum? Is there lots of places in the house where mum can be? You know, is there a plant? Is there places that we can have a touchstone to mum's memory and remember her? Because there's this fear that once the new woman comes in, everything about the mum goes. And being honest in all of the complexity of what they feel and building the bonds of trust through that honesty is how they will manage it. And it's tricky. It Mm -hmm. is painful.
3: Yeah, you can't pretend there's an easy fix, is there? Right. Let's listen to our final letter. This comes from a woman who has been covertly sent damaging secrets about her husband after he passed away. Dear Deirdre, my husband died suddenly six months ago, and I'm struggling to cope after an anonymous letter arrived saying that he had
1: cheated on me for seven years. He died aged just 59, and we had had a very happy marriage. My son and I are devastated. I am 55, and my
3: son is 28. The letter said he'd been seeing a woman at work and that he would have left me, but she had died in a car accident three years ago. I was shocked to the core. I found out that this woman did indeed work for the same firm as him and was killed. I have spoken to friends who work there too, and they just don't believe it. I don't believe it myself, but why would someone try to cause me so much pain? Deirdre, where do I turn to next? That's just such a devastating letter.
4: It is a double grief, isn't it? It's the grief of the husband that she loved and lived with for decades, and then another grief for who was this man that I loved and lived with and what is true and what can I trust and who was he? And her interpretation was, how could he hate me? Mm. And I think what's incredibly difficult is that what you don't know, you make up. And what you make up is so much worse than the truth. So there are so many pieces of that jigsaw that she will never, ever be able to find out Mm. and have a kind of an accurate story because the story we tell ourselves is in the end the person we become and where there are kind of holes in the story that they kind of contaminate and toxify our experience and so the work for her and she I would say that she would definitely needs to get psychological support Mm. she couldn't manage this on her own this is too complicated the rumination the kind of madness and fury that she will go to is she needs to accommodate, kind of come to terms and come to live with both the sadness that she's lost her husband, which is a valid and true feeling, and the fury and the betrayal and the distrust of his affair, and come to terms and recognise what she will never find out and learn to live with that. And that's a long old piece of work, and it's very painful. But if she doesn't do the work and how we heal in grief is by allowing ourselves to feel the pain, to express it, she will actually very likely have a version of prolonged grief disorder Mm. because it's exactly stories like this that lead to long-term depression and, you know, 15% of all psychological disorders come from unresolved
3: grief. Simon, what are your initial thoughts? Well,
2: I totally echo that. She has to get help to talk this through because the one person you'd want to talk it through with is the person who's now gone. Yes. That would be the only beginning point normally on the road to getting to a point of peace with this, whether that means they stay together or they don't. The questions that need answering can only come from the husband who's now gone. Yeah. And it reminded me so much when I saw this letter of a guy I met probably about 18 months after, after I'd gone through losing my first wife and he'd just lost his wife and she'd had quite a long struggle with breast cancer and eventually it took her life and I sat down with him and I met him we'd exchanged kind of a few messages I knew him a little bit from my world of work and I, I, I met up with him for lunch one day and he was experiencing something a little bit similar right. in that he had these suspicions that maybe maybe at some point she had been unfaithful but he didn't have any kind of this evidence. level of evidence but he had this doubt and he told me his experience of the last six months since his wife had gone, it hadn't really been about grieving her. It had been this pursuit of the truth right. that he said in his words to me has driven me to the point of madness. I'm going through every letter I can find, I'm going through her phone with a fine tooth comb to find any messages that might point towards this. And I remember him saying to me, what, what do you think I should do? And I'm thinking, my days. And I, All I said to him is said, at some point, you're going to have to find peace with this. Because ultimately, the person you want to ask about this now is no longer here. Yeah. And the mind movies, the mind stories that can come out of infidelity anyway, yeah. even when the person is here about what really happened and what it looks like in our head, can drive you literally yeah. mad. And so I said, you, Just, you need to get additional help on top of what you're already getting to processes because this could live with you This mental head screw that you're going through on top of grieving for your yeah. wife Who he loved dearly and she did clearly love him But there was this niggling doubt that I said if you don't address that if you don't somehow through whatever processes and I said like Julie's been saying I'd, I'd get help, you know talking yeah. through with a counsellor, find a good counsellor You have to find a point of peace with this in that I will never truly know what happened I have this niggling doubt, but I'm at peace with that. I know that's incredibly difficult for this woman yes. to get to that point, but you can't have the rest of your life robbed by what you've heard because it will rob her on top of the grief she already feels. So, I yeah, like Julie said, I just, please, please, please get proper help because yeah. this is so complicated. So many... Conflicting emotions going on mm. on top of grief. I'd be honest, I can't even begin to imagine what that no, would be.
3: No, like. I don't think you can really even address the grief, can you? Until you accept that no. you will never know really what happened. To finish off, I'd like to ask you both if you could say one thing to somebody who is struggling with a bereavement, what would you say to them?
4: Often, what is so difficult is. That by allowing yourselves to grieve and feel the pain is how you heal. Yeah. And that doing that, you have to have the love and connection to other people. So it may be professional help. It may be your close friends. It might be your family. But people need people and we particularly need them when we're grieving.
2: So my one big piece of advice would be this. You don't need to be strong. Let that grief out. Yeah. Just let it out. Do not bottle it up. It will come out at some point and it'll probably be a bigger mess if you wait. I hated this phrase, be strong. And I think now I understand it. It's people want the strong version of yourself because that's the easier person to be around. Being around someone who's going through grief is a difficult place to be as we've talked about already yeah. that person will be particularly if it's traumatic grief as well we're displaying a whole range of emotions i had ptsd for many many months afterwards so you would never know what you were going to get on any given day with me some yeah. days i'd be okay the next minute i'd be raging or very very tearful or panicking or whatever it, i was just every emotion was on display i couldn't be strong uh, but actually what these people were saying was be strong because. We prefer the more comfortable version of Simon. Yes, tidier. Yeah, this is this is easier to be around. Yes,
3: I can sit in a room with you. People if you're don't strong. have the strength,
2: but they're being strong by just getting through that yeah. day. That's an amazing show of yeah. strength. And I was being strong by just Staying being alive. able to get up. Yeah, yeah, stay alive. Get Ethan to school in the morning. Get yes. the breakfast on the table. Get the packed lunch done. Remember to pick him up. There were days where I nearly forgot. Yeah. Get him home again and get through. That was strength for me. That's
3: a proper achievement. Yeah. Mm.
2: So I'd say to people you don't need to be strong Mm. you don't don't and if people say that to you ignore it because just be you let that grief express itself however uncomfortable it is
3: don't be strong be messy
2: (laughs) i like it yeah
4: well being messy is being strong yeah
2: exactly
3: that's better we'll go with yours (laughs) (laughs) thank you both so much pleasure thank you thank you Thanks so much to you for listening and to Simon Thomas and Julia Samuel for being such great company in sharing their words of advice on grief. We've covered the importance of loving again after loss, managing emotions of abandonment and replacement and hopefully equipped you with tools to help you or your loved ones navigate grief. If you're struggling with a problem and feel like you need some advice, the Dear Deirdre team is here to help just send your problems to dear Deirdre at the-sun.co.uk and remember you can read Dear Deirdre every day at thesun.co.uk forward slash dear-deirdre or by picking up a copy of The Sun. Our advice page is packed full of support and extra resources which can help you with your own challenges. Before you go don't forget to click follow so you never miss an episode and if you have a spare moment Maybe you could give us a rating and leave us a review. This boost of appreciation all helps so that other people who are seeking advice can find us on their podcast app. I'll be back next week for another episode of Answering Your Dilemmas. But for now, I'm Sally Land and this has been Dear Deirdre.